Hello, welcome back, and thanks for joining us. I'm Khalid, one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy, and I'm excited to open up this episode with author and Embodied Philosophy faculty, Andrew Holacek. Andrew Holacek has completed the traditional three-year Buddhist meditation retreat and offers seminars internationally on meditation, dream yoga, and the art of dying. He is the author of Preparing to Die, Practical Advice and Spiritual Wisdom from the Tibetan Buddhist Tradition, Meditation in the I Generation, How to Meditate in a World of Speed and Stress, The Power and the Pain, Transforming Spiritual Hardship into Joy, The Audio Learning Course, Dream Yoga, The Tibetan Path of Awakening Through Lucid Dreaming, and his latest book, Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Dr. Holacek is a member of the American Academy of Sleep Science, and has authored scientific papers. His work has appeared in Parabola, Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Utna Reader, Buddha Dharma Magazine, Light of Consciousness, and many other periodicals. Andrew holds degrees in classical music, biology, and a doctorate in dental surgery. Now we at Embody Philosophy are also pleased to announce the release of the latest issue of the journal Tarka. In this issue, on Tantra, we explore various streams of the Tantric movement. From its origins in ancient India to its modern interpretations, we discover the enduring legacy of Tantra and why its philosophies and practices still resonate. The issue is available as a digital PDF or as a beautiful print issue for your contemplative library. Check out the link in the show notes to explore the latest issue. Now, in this episode, Andrew is in conversation with Stephanie Carigliano and Jacob Kyle as they discuss Andrew's article, Is the West Ready for Tantra? An article released in the latest issue of Tarka. We hope you enjoy. The article that we we invited Andrew here to speak about is one that he wrote now a little while ago, but it's titled provocatively, Is the West Ready for Tantra? And so I just wanted to open up, it sits somewhere towards the middle of our journal, and it's a key article within the issue just because it it bridges this gap between the tradition, the more historical traditions of Tantra, and some of the uh, efforts that the issue puts forth to just kind of understand the basics, and then this kind of bridge into, you know, modern Western uh, use and appreciation of these practices. So, Andrew, I just wanted to invite you in the beginning to to say something about your own tradition. Uh, you write that you're modestly informed about Hindu Tantra, but your tradition is Tibetan Buddhism. And so I'm curious if you could tell us something about what makes the, the practice of Tibetan Buddhism that you do specifically tantric, as opposed to maybe Mahayana Buddhism at large or some other form of Buddhism in general. So I'm sorry, the last part, Stephanie, first of all, a delight to be with you, delight to be with everybody. Say the last part of the question is slightly slipped for me. What makes the practice of, of Tibetan Buddhism that you do uh, tantric? Oh, um, I see. Yeah, why yeah. use this this phrase, this uh, term tantric, as opposed to a more uh, other kind of Buddhism? Yeah, 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 right. So uh, good question. Well, you know, tantra is one of these multivalent terms, right? And there are various forms of tantra. Buddhist tantra evolved really as derivative from Hindu tantra. Actually, it would be helpful for some Tibetan Buddhists to acknowledge that a little bit more and study the genesis in the, in the ancient Hindu traditions. But in, in the approach that I roll with, we talk more about Vajrayana than, than Tantra per se, even though they're virtually synonymous. And in that regard, it's helpful to know and to contextualize within the Buddhist framework, the three yanas or vehicles, that's what yana means, vehicles, all together. There's the, the, the Hinayana or Theravada which is the, the narrow lesser vehicle. In the pejorative sense, they, they, talk it, they talk about it as the lesser vehicle. I think that's, that's really unfortunate because who wants to be, oh, I am a member of the tradition of the lesser vehicle, right? So, so it just means narrow, individual, personalized vehicle where you clean up your stuff. You're really working on your, on your own stuff, right? And then Mahayana, great wide vehicle. And each, each of these vehicles, as you know, has its historical unfolding from, from India. The Mahayana transcends but includes the Hinayana, 
there the the ideal of the bodhisattva bodhicitta comes into play walking the path for the benefit of others and then what people often forget even in the buddhist world is the vajrayana literally the indestructible vehicle the adamantine or as professor bob thurman provocatively translates it the apocalyptic vehicle right this is the alleged highest vehicle that transcends but includes the previous two and people forget that it's actually a subset of the mahayana that it basically has the same view the same ideals the same aspirations um walking the path for the benefit of others but really what makes it so potent in my estimation is so, it's also sometimes called the upayayana or the vehicle of skillful means and this is why i subscribe to it there are so many different meditations right it's called the quick path also why because everything becomes the path sleeping dreaming sex dying you name it everything becomes viable material there are no weeds in the garden of vajrayana um and that's why i subscribe to it because i i just love the vast array of of skill sets that it provides especially in my world the five nocturnal meditations right all the ways you can work with the mind under any conceivable circumstance so i'll i'll pause to come up for air but that's what comes to mind right <laughs> i love that um that visual that there are no weeds in the garden yeah i mean there's there's <clears throat> everything is <clears throat> grist excuse me everything is grist for the mill and and in fact in in this particular tradition and situations phenomena that previously actually obstructed the path can now be seen to accelerate it and and that's really also unique where and this is where it becomes a little bit tricky/dangerous is that you can use uh emotionally charged situations uh what sanskrit refers to as klesha it's it's almost anamanapiya right klesha attacks attacks primarily of um primarily of passion and aggression jealousy pride these are these are considered obstacles on the traditional vehicle approaches but in the tantra and the vajrayana the greater the obstacle the greater the opportunity and in fact trumpanpache one of my rukus famously said you know um chaos should be regarded as extremely good news well that's if you know how to ride the chaos but here the idea is that if you have the right view if you're equipped with the right methods you can go directly into these emotional energies that would previously just carry you away and generate super samsara you can actually use those to to uh, transform them into awakened processes and and fundamentally in bardo language literally meet the deity i mean the purified emotional energy is the deity and so there's it's just so it's brilliant in that regard but again you have to be prepared right because if you jump into it and you go oh i'm just going to be a sadaka i'm just going to be a tantrika well i i i'm blessed to roll in a number of different western communities and um i somewhat hesitantly say that there's a whole lot of heightened neurosis taking place in these communities right so all this stuff is coming up and sometimes i you know who am i to judge these things but boy there doesn't seem to be a lot of surfing going on there seems to be a lot of drowning going on so again it's more of a, of a qualifier that when you're playing with these practices you're really playing with thermonuclear energy you're playing with the awakened energy of the mind and the energies that basically move us in this life and so if you don't relate to those energies properly like i say in my article they they won't um electrify they'll electrocute and and people in the west really get burned here because i mean i can speak for myself hey i'm a westerner i know more than these asians i'm 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 the exception i don't have to do the preliminaries that's the other thing about tantra the preliminaries are more important than the main practice and so the impatient westerner i'll just talk about me hopscotches all the preliminaries thinking ah i'm just going to race right up to launch pad blast off and then holy moly it either doesn't work or they get fried um because they feel that they're the um western spiritually imperialistic elite right and they can just negate all these regulatory agencies and i think um important containers that are associated with tantra so tantra is super super powerful you just have to know how to work with the energy that's being invited and then released yeah what you're talking about which is very fascinating touches on a kind of sub part of your article with the title of the section is why is tantra risky and this is actually one of the questions that i wanted to talk to you about and and you're already starting to speak to it 
is almost like the contraindications, <clears throat> right? We we have this attitude in in the West that everything should be available to me. You know, it's a spiritual buffet, and tantra happens to be one of those things that is particularly sexy right now, yeah. <laughs> um, which is sort of ironic since it's so often associated with sex, but it is a trendy sort of um, set of practices. And you, you know, you go to some lengths like you're doing now to express the reasons why um, we might take pause before we just leap in to some of these traditions. So can you talk about what you see as being the specific kind of Western obstacle to our ability to just um, freewheel into these traditions. Yeah, I think I think just to reinstate the importance of uh, humility, that that um, these practices are prescription strength spirituality. Right, this is not over the counter stuff. And so, if you use, I'm a, I'm a retired doc. If you use as directed prescription strength medicine, is amazing. But if you go in informed by Doctor Google or your own intuitions and you feel you're somehow, again, the exception, then these um, prescription strength medicines can, you can overdose. Again, I don't know how far we want to ride this metaphor, but you can you can get yourself into trouble. And so um, the lack of humility is important, I should say, is a factor in the West. The general impatience, uh, especially when you're doing really long retreat, like for instance, I did a three-year retreat, and it was with a group of practitioners. And when you're doing especially long retreat, which is the ideal environment for, for engaging in um, at least the initial stages of tantric practice, people are in there and, and a lot of these tantric uh, practices are actually characterized by signs. In other words, they're, they're indicators for accomplishment. So for instance, if you're doing POA, that's another really sexy esoteric practice, right? Ejection of consciousness. I mean, they're fundamentally signs that you either have the signs or you don't. You develop a itch on the top of your head, maybe some exudate, maybe some blood or pus. That means you've accomplished the practice, right? Well, people push, right? They're sitting there, ah, you know, I should be having some signs, right? And so they push, they push. And that's where they get into trouble. Or you start doing some of the the, the inner yoga practices like Tumo Chandali, which are Buddhist analogs to like uh, uh, Kundalini practices, you're, now you're targeting, the, the again, the thermonuclear basis, the DNA of all these confused lifetimes, all this confusion that's just packed into your subtle body. Well, you go into these practices, they're literally called wrathful methods of liberation. You go in there with an impatient attitude, and you don't allow things to unfold naturally, properly, you don't have the proper preparation, you don't follow, you don't, you're not used as directed then these energies dislodge, they break loose and they can, they can shift into the wrong energy system, uh, channel systems into the wrong chakras. And you get these suckling disorders, you get these wind disorders. And I know people who literally have been bruised for years with these things, these energies dislodge and you get in trouble. And so anything that has this much power, like, I mean, again, Tantra is, is really electrifying power. Anything that has this much power to transform, if it's not handled properly, again, with, with, with proper set and setting, it's a little bit like the use of psychedelics. Honestly, if you don't have the right mindset, if you don't have the right setting, i.e., you know, you might be set up for for a bad trip. Um, so I think humility, um, impatience, right view, you know, first and foremost in the Buddhist tradition of the Eightfold Noble um, Factors is right view, understanding what you're doing and why, creating the proper uh, crucible, the proper set of understanding. Really, if you do that, then humility, patience is actually born from that. I mean, the place I did my three-year retreat is called Sukpa Chilling in, in Tibetan, which means literally Dharma, place of patience or forbearance. So I think those are the principal uh, factors that come to mind, um, Jacob. I mean, there's there's a host of other ones, but it's it's fundamentally comes down to those things, the exceptionalist attitude. Um, Evan Thompson writes beautifully about this in his book, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, um, Buddhist exceptionalism, Buddhist elitism, that somehow we we are, are special. Um, and again, people forget, they just forget the role of, of uh, the Mahayana. And, and this is actually really important too. As a subset, Tantra being a subset of the Mahayana, if you don't have the 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 kind of rocket fuel of compassion, bodhicitta, that you're really, you're really doing this no longer for yourself. I mean, that self should have been somewhat left behind in the, in the Hinayana tradition, right? That should have been left behind. 
But again, hey, I'm just going to hopscotch over. I'm going to jump over the Mahayana from the Hinayana all the way to the Vajrayana. And then what happens is you lose that critically important um, in, uh, motivation of love, kindness, compassion, that you're doing this for the benefit of others. And again, Trungpa Rinpoche, right? The master of the one-liner, I guess in this case, two-liners. This is beautiful. He said, having the Vajrayana, the Tantra, without the Mahayana, without, in other words, without love, kindness, compassion, bodhicitta, is like having a really fancy house, modern house with every conceivable electrical gadget, but no hookup, right? So nothing works. And that's what happens with the impatient Westerner, right? They get in there, ah, you know, even in three-year retreat, that's a long time, but you're in there, I got to have these signs. Nothing's happening. Well, maybe nothing's happening. It's not because of the practice. Take a little responsibility. It's maybe because you're not properly prepared. And that's when they start to push, right? They start to lean into it. It's too hard, you know, way too tight. And then, and then these, these, these uh, practices will whiplash. I mean, they'll come back and they'll smack you. Um, so as long as we understand, again, the role of the, of the practices, what they're designed to do, how to relate to them with tremendous respect, honoring the tradition, honoring all the regulatory agencies that are implemented to actually safeguard the practitioner. And that's the other thing that's important to understand for Westerners is that, you know, it, it's like, this is like penthouse spirituality. I mean, like, how many metaphors can I throw in, right? Everybody wants to be in the penthouse. Everybody wants to do the elite stuff. But if you don't go in, if you don't do the preparatory practices, if you don't um, work your way up properly, that's really, really, really where the problems lie. So if you do it the way it's directed, and, and the traditions are very clear about this, you know, you take your time, you do it properly, you're patient, you you respect where it comes from, you respect its power, and you err on the side of basically too loose, right? The maximum meditation is finding a middle way between not too tight, not too loose, well, with the Tantra, you want to be too loose. You want to be a little bit really open, relaxed, and spacious to allow these thermonuclear power uh, practices to unfold um, properly. Um, and, and just don't be so impatient, right? Don't rush to the goodies. Do the preparatory practices properly. It's like the, the gradual path to sudden enlightenment. Everybody wants sudden enlightenment. Well, it's the gradual path to sudden enlightenment. You do the, like in dream yoga. Dream yoga is a tantric practice. You do the preliminary practices for dream yoga. And by the way, small plug for you guys, we'll be doing a program with you on dream yoga. You do the dream yoga preparatory practices properly. Non-lucidity doesn't stand a chance. You will have lucid dreams. Hard stop. But again, people go, oh, you know, I'm just going to skip this. I'm going to skip that. I'm just going to go right to the techniques. And yet, it ain't going to work. And so they get in there and then they push. They push. No, no, don't push. Remedial school, go back to ground zero, work your way up to the penthouse. Just be humble. Realize that these are extraordinarily powerful practices. And again, in, in the information age, right? Um, we confuse information for experience. We, we have to be careful of how, and, and this is a little interesting um, kind of comment, even about the, 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 the publication of this particular issue, Tantra Altogether in the West is that originally, as you know, this was a forest tradition, a jungle tradition. It was, it was held in secrecy. This was not meant for the general public. But right now, I mean, this is really interesting. Times are different, right? It's like all hands on deck. I mean, if we don't come up and bring all these techniques, and this is why a lot of these practices, even including dream yoga, I talk to so many of my, my masters, my teachers, hey, is it cool for me to teach on dream yoga, bhada yoga, all this stuff? And they said, yes, in this day and age, it's okay. Why? Because the world's on fire, man. So this may seem like I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. It just simply means that we have tremendous opportunity with these extraordinary um, uh, practices, but we do have to just be simply aware, honoring the tradition and doing all the other stuff that I've mentioned. Great. Thank, Thank you, Andrew. And for yeah. more contraindications, uh, read Andrew's article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's more there. Yeah, we don't want to square, we don't want to scare people away. That's the other thing. No, no. Ah, you know, ah, oh gosh, it's like I shouldn't be touching this stuff. No, no, no. You can touch it. You can do it. You just have to know what you're doing. Again, strong medicine requires you, you to get these. Like I, I go to my pharmacy, I fill out my script, right? You get these little brochures, right? There's like 5,000 words for how to handle this medicine. Well, there's a reason that stuff is there because otherwise you can't get a little trouble. Andrew, I had a, a, a question or a, a, a point in your article that um, stood out to me. You use a quote from Jack Angler that I've always um, oh, yeah. I've 
long appreciated. And I'm just, I'll just read the two lines here. You said the contemplative uh, psychiatrist, Jack Engler famously warned, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Right. And then you, you rephrased um, without a stable grounding in the relative self and an understanding that growth transcends, but includes the ego instead of enlightenment, you risk madness. Yeah. And so my, my question to you is why is it important to give uh, healing or attention to the relative self if your ultimate goal is, is something that transcends that limited egoic individualized self? Yes. Yeah. Really, really strong. Good point. And, and this also um, brings in the larger question that I didn't write about in the article that maybe we can talk about here a little bit, the different vectors of growing up versus waking up the critical importance between states and structures of consciousness. This is actually, in my opinion, a colossal blind spot <clears throat> in most Eastern traditions is they don't, they don't have the methodologies to work with developmental structures of, of human development, uh, evolution, which I think is super important. And that actually comes to play here. So the fundamental idea here, I mean, this secondary quote is attributed sometimes to <clears throat> R.D. Lang, the, the psychiatrist, student of Trumpermache, Joseph Campbell, you know, the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. And so the, the idea here, both from a development, well, actually principally from a developmental point of view, is that there, there really does have to be some stable center of gravity, some developmental center of gravity <clears throat> before one, you know, so one can use that as a holy jumping off point. I think Da Frijan, Da Lavananda, the controversial American teacher, used that term, the holy jumping off point, where there has to be some level of, of developmental stability with um, especially these types of practices. Um, because again, if you don't, if you don't really relate to this arrested form of development properly, I mean, that's all ego is. There is no ego to, to really get rid of. There's an ego fundamentally to see through. It's an arrested form of development, exclusive identification with form. But again, if you don't have some stability in that, then when you're inviting the deconstruction of that form, the transcendence and inclusion of that form, see, that's again where developmental things come into play. Understanding that you always have recourse to relating to that particular level of development. And the analogy I use is, you know, when you go from age 16 to age 17, you don't kill age 16, right? You transcend, but include age 16. So even when you become a so-called adult, you can stoop down to age, whatever, 16, and relate to people that are still at that level. That's where skillful means comes into play. Um, but this is important. And I have to say, I, I speak with very direct experience with this. You know, I mean, some 40 years ago, whoa, long time. I had this kind of spontaneous um, breakthrough experience where in retrospect, I actually fundamentally had, in a certain sense, I had the experience prematurely. And this ties in also to the tantric things. You can absolutely positively have experiences prematurely. And by this, what I mean in the Buddhist arena, they talk about understanding, experience, realization, three kind of standard approaches to real growth. Well, ideally, you want to have some understanding before you have the experience. Experience, by definition, is, is unstable, it's transient, comes and goes. These are related to states of consciousness. Realization is stable. But fundamentally, what can happen, and this is what happened to me in my early 20s, I, I had this kind of spontaneous breakthrough thing where all my dreams became lucid, all my daytime experience became increasingly kind of illusory. At first, it was really cool. It's like, wow, this is amazing. I said, maybe this is what it means to be awake. Well, after a couple of weeks, because I didn't have the understanding to contextualize and hold the experience, it was like, holy crap, I'm not getting enlightened here. I'm going crazy. I, I lost my reference points. And so, therefore, understanding um, the, the extraordinary role of developmental structures, having a solid platform. And again, I've also seen this in... in, in, in uh, spiritual communities as well, is people come in, they may be psychologically a little bit unstable, um, uh, derealization disorders, depersonalization, uh, extreme cases, uh, dissociative identity disorders. I mean, there are people that really don't have a stable ego structure. They engage in these um, particular practices and then, and then they just really can't um, ride in that um, fluidity. They can't hang out in that open space. And that's where psychosis uh, actually come into play. And, and again, I speak with very personal experience because my sister is an institutionalized schizophrenic 
And we are probably emotionally, psychologically the most alike. I mean, I, I feel closer to her to anybody on this planet. And on one level, it's like, whoa, you know, this very easily could have been me. I was just fortunate to have a structure, to define a structure in the Tibetan world, and then also supplemented with my um, deep infatuation and appreciation for integral studies, the role of developmental um, appreciations, you know, states and structures, these kinds of things. So we can go in that direction if you want. I think that's really important for practitioners because that is tremendous explanatory power, parenthetically, for so-called spiritual masters who go astray. And we just read this almost every day, the scandals that are endless in the tradition, like what, what's going on there? Where's that coming from? So I'll pause there to see if I'm answering your um, question appropriately. It's a good one. Sorry, go ahead, Stephanie. Do you have a... No, I just, I appreciated your response. I think that that was great. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, welcome. Yeah, re really interesting. Um, and um, I appreciate you kind of remarking about sometimes almost the fine line between uh, kind of latent or activated spiritual capacities and how easily that can be also um, something that brings someone into sort of um, tenuous psychological territory. Um, and it seems like one of the things that is important in, in supporting um, the ability to stay on the side of a stable ego structure and, and have the kind of proper mechanisms and structures and, and practices and supportive contexts in place is to have the presence and the support of a qualified teacher. Yeah. And you made a really important point towards the end of your essay that I thought was really kind of insightful, um, which was about the role of the teacher, which of course, for anybody that knows, you know, tantric traditions traditionally are extremely, you know, guru centric. I mean, there's a huge role in all tantric traditions, traditions for the teacher and you don't um, you know, engage in certain practices without diksha, without initiation from one's teacher. But of course, we are now in a modern context where all sorts of really problematic things have happened in terms of abuses of power, sexual misconduct. And, and so you make this point towards the end of the article about the amount, the, the, the sort of uh, just enough power for a teacher to have. And, um, and I wanted to read uh, just this passage in full because I think it's so good. Uh, devotion, you, it's coming out of a, uh, um, you're remarking on the importance of devotion in tantric practice. And you say that devotion involves surrender. When engaged properly, you're surrendering your ego. In classic guru yoga, you learn how to open and surrender to the wisdom of the guru. Guru, It's easy to slip into the near enemy of, quote, idiot surrender, love that term, <laughs> where you lose your critical faculties and surrender your intelligence, right? This is the extreme um, end. The tantric texts assert that every action of the guru should be perceived as perfect and that the guru should be viewed as the Buddha incarnate. In some tantric communities, to question the guru is to virtually guarantee expulsion or ensure your status as a pariah. But in this day and age, I believe it is important for teachers to accept good questioning and for students to feel comfortable asking the tough questions. And then you quote uh, author Scott Edelstein as saying, part of our jobs as students is to give our teachers the right amount of power. This means allowing them to influence us, perhaps quite deeply, but not allowing them to brainwash us, control us, or make us smaller or less human. And I thought this was a really beautiful thought that you're kind of, you know, discussing here, because it seems to offer this middle path between, on the one hand, we have people who are completely surrendered and and that's sort of the 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 uh you know kind of dimension of what tantra is all about that they that they surrender to <laughs> that they are indoctrinated in and then on the other hand we have this kind of very new age sort of idea that i don't need any teacher teacher lies within i can do everything myself and you know just let me go to the self-help section and i'll find the books i need you know that sort of thing Perfect. So this is clearly a sort of middle path. And I wanted you to just talk a little bit more about that. And, and, and I guess the specifically, the question is, how do we know when en there's enough power, the teacher has enough power, and how do we discern between that just enough and having too much? 
Yeah, I mean, these are this is these are really great questions, Jacob. And, and I think again, it's one of the really great powers of Tantra and also really one of the great perils because I mean, fundamentally, when you're working with um Tantra, especially in, in Tibetan Buddhism, um devotion is everything. I mean, it, it's the core practice, it's the rocket fuel, right? And so what does devotion really do? So devotion fundamentally in, in guru principle fundamentally harnesses the most powerful force in the universe, which is love. Um, really harnessing that um, force, unconditional love for the purposes of awakening. And so basically what happens here is you're suggesting, but I want to just reinstate a couple of things, put a couple of exclamation points on it. Is that it, when when um, an Abhishekha takes place, an empowerment, a Shaktipad, I mean, all the wisdom traditions have this. There's this magical point of transmission, which happens formally and then also happens a little bit more informally with the very presence of the teacher, right? Is that there, there, is, a, there is a transmission, there's a communication, which actually, honestly, is a type of poa. It's kind of a horizontal level of poa, where this awakened quality of mind, again, because you have that within you, there is, um, this is where it's really important to understand the four types of guru, which I can just um, peel off rather quickly. This is really important. Number, not necessarily in order of importance, but the guru as a person, the guru as, as text, actually as dharma. Um, the two most uh, uh, interesting ones for me, symbolic guru, the guru is phenomenal world. That at a certain point, you become so open that like Milarepa said, phenomena is all the book one needs. Reality becomes your teacher through synchronicity, through auspicious coincidence, through opening. You, you, we all know this. We feel these intuitions. Then, of course, like you suggested, the ultimate guru really is within. The ultimate guru is within. And so all these outer forms of guru are provisional. They're all fundamentally directing you towards the inner guru. And so if, there's, if there are extreme relationships to the first three and then the fourth, then problems arise. Like you said, if everybody thinks like the Westerner, the independent one, oh, I'm a pioneer. I don't need anybody. The guru is within. I'm just going to go to the, the self-help section. That's really great, right? Well, get back to me in 20 years and let me know how that goes. Because you're probably going to get lost in a host of internal psycho-spiritual hornet's nests. And I've seen this. You know, you just, you just, blind spots are intractable. They're so difficult to work through. And then the other three is also has its own set of hornet's nests. That's what makes this stuff so elegant, beautiful, messy, and difficult. But when you're really in love, when you work with guru yoga, when you work with bhakti yoga, what are you doing? You're opening, you're opening, you're opening, surrendering. Remember, ego is an exclusive identification with form. Egolessness is associated with openness, formlessness, emptiness. So you're opening, opening, opening. You're making yourself more vulnerable, more open, more available, more receptive to the shakyapat, to this blessing, either formally or informally, to enter you. And then you feel it. it I mean, it's really a moment of transmission, uh, uh, transmission and it will, it will profoundly affect you. But again, if you don't go in, especially in the West these days with eyes wide open, I mean, there's all kinds of shadow stuff. And shadows, by the way, shadow work, the work of Carl Jung, shadows are not always negative. Basically, shadows are processes of the unconscious mind that aren't recognized, that then get thrown onto others. So there's also the golden shadow that takes place here, where we project onto another person, in this case, a teacher who may not really be a teacher. And, and I, again, I, I see this a lot, man. I've been around. Somebody comes in in the West, they have a legitimate, 100% legitimate experience. It's not even stable. It's not realization yet. It's just experience. Instead of holding it in silence, that's the other thing about these experiences and Tantra in general, that's what actually stabilizes and matures experience into realization is holding it in silence. They start blabbing about it. Well, before you know it, people believe in it. This transference, counter-transference, enabling thing takes place. Next thing you know, you've got a cult. People think they're lifting each other up where they're basically taking each other down. And so therefore, understanding the psychological processes at, at, at work here, um, golden shadow work, that you're, you're, you're giving away your power. You're actually, this is not healthy empowerment. This is disempowerment. You are throwing away your power onto that other person. And then if they're not a legitimate teacher, inevitably what happens, as I playfully say, even with romantic love, you fall out of love and into reality, right? The whole thing just collapses and sometimes catastrophically. I mean, some of these things like the Rigpa thing, I mean, my heart breaks. The Shambhala thing, my heart breaks. It's just so bloody tragic. And these are, these are career lifetime victims now, right? Because they trusted, they opened, they loved, and they got fried. 
So I think this is why the Dalai Lama says this, you know, in, in this day and age, don't be afraid to ask the tough questions. Look at the communities. Is there a sense of service? Again, there's whole metrics to, I think, in my opinion, to assess the veracity of a teacher. There's lots of ways to really work with this sort of thing. I think in this day and age, it's really important to do it because you get, um, again, East and West globalization makes these boundaries a little bit less tenable than previously. But you know, I spend a ton of time in Asia, man. I mean, years. And while I have, like, I say this with such veneration and such deep respect for these wisdom traditions, I mean, some of the the, the some of the um, so-called masters in the East are, are emotionally, psychologically, actually quite naive. I hate to say it. Oh my God, please forgive me. You know, but I think it's true. And so they come over here and they see women in mini skirts. They see they they have this whole thing happening in the West. And and sometimes I think they they get tripped into this thing. So you don't think this is an issue? Just read the papers, right? You've seen this stuff happen all the time, all the abuses, all the power things. So we have to realize this is this is part of the challenge, the delight, the mess. This is why we need to ask the right questions. We need to be informed. This is why you guys doing this, this magazine issue is so important because otherwise spiritual bypassing, that's another thing that needs to be thrown in here, Retrospect, um, retrofitting a little bit this issue about uh, developments. John Wellwood's beautiful, wonderful term, psychiatrist, I should say psychologist, and a deep, deep tantric practitioner completely acknowledge, recognize that, hey, in fact, my friend Roger Walsh, MD, PhD, beautiful meditation instructor. What an amazing thing I'm about to share with you. He says when he works with his meditation students, 80% of what he sees is psychological in nature. 80% of what he sees as a spiritual meditation instructor, he says these people need therapy. I mean, on one level, really, honestly, right? Maybe me, especially, we all need therapy. So spiritual by, 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 bypassing comes into this uh, uh, work, shadow work comes into it, understanding the complexity, um, just you know how much is really involved here. And, and I'm all over the place here, Jacob, because your question is so big. There are so many noodles you threw up. So maybe I can pause for a second and see if you want me to target one of these vectors in particular. But this is such a complex issue. And again, it's really important because if you want real genuine Tantra to work, if the invitation through Guru Yoga, Tensei Rinpoche once said at the level of, of Vajrayana, every meditation is fundamentally Guru Yoga. It's a way to open, open, open. I mean, to me, that's a synonym for emptiness, opening, opening all the way to the awakened state. But hey, you know what happens when you're open? You're more vulnerable, you're more receptive, you're more, you can be more manipulated. And that's why this openness, again, if, if you don't have a really legitimate teacher, and I understand how difficult that is to suss out, you can you know what happens. The power things come in and people, they do these, I mean, all the crap that we see going on these days. And it ain't going to stop unless we understand that the psycho-spiritual, the two vectors of development that are involved here, it's not just all spiritual. There is a psychological thing. Yes, you can see it on the spectrum for sure. But I, I think this getting into the weeds here, sussing this stuff out, going into the stuff eyes wide open, it's really important in this day and age. I mean, just, just see what's happening if we don't, right? So anyways, kind of long-winded circumambulating approach to- No, that's great. There were a lot of, there were a lot of nuggets of wisdom in oh, there. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I do have a tendency to ask big questions that, <laughs> that we don't have time to really dive into completely, but I think you scratched the surface in a really beautiful way. And I know that Stephanie and I actually, we talk about sort of the need to, to come together in a more dedicated forum to talk a little bit more pointedly about- the ram, um, kind of like how communities and individual, how do communities recover, you know, after these sorts of things happen and, and how, again, this, you know, this kind of continuing huge question of how much power is too much power for the teacher? What is the role of the teacher after all this has happened and that sort of thing? So, you know, we'll leave it at scratching the service. And, um, but I think that was, uh, there was a beautiful answer in there. So thank you. In fact, as a, as a humble suggestion, I might um, throw across your brow that as a future issue for Tarka, you actually do a, a, an exploration of psychospirituality, that you bring in these two vectors of growing up and waking up states and structures of consciousness. Because in my estimation, without this kind of wide um, systemic holistic integral framework, boy, this is where so much confusion comes into play. And if you understand these things, not to necessarily shrink rapid, right? But to articulate the, the, the complexity of the human condition, 
um, boy, then you can really help people. You know, then you can see all the places where people get stuck. So, yeah. Anyway, okay. It's, uh, it's on the calendar for 2024. It's been decided. Stephanie's ready. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. I'd love to contribute to that one. Awesome. Wonderful. We will, um, we will get back to you about that. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that we are running um, a little longer than we discussed uh, talking about. And so I, I want to be respectful of your time. We did have some student questions or student oh, yeah, we'll audience questions. No, this is so much fun. I could, I could talk about this stuff for hours because I, mean, I have so much passion for this, right? I mean, I, I've, been, <clears throat> I've been around for a while. I've been in these communities. I won't name names, but I could. I've been in these communities with these kind of startup companies, right? The startup spiritual teachers. I've been from ground zero, level one, coming up. So I've been in it and I've seen it from the inside and out. I've pulled out of a couple of communities because I saw trouble happening. So I'm not riffing on this stuff as as an intellectual. Um, I'm riffing on this from the trenches of life where um, I haven't been personally been that affected by this because I've had been blessed by some insights and whatnot. But I have passion for this because I have a lot of really great friends who have been seriously burned by all these things, both in terms of the devotion, openness issue that we just talked about, both in terms of the the kind of um, unprepared relationship to Tantra altogether. And so I get jazzed about this stuff um, and have passion for it because uh, I want to help people prevent some of the same issues that I've seen. And also, if it's done properly to encourage them, yeah, it doesn't mean you can't do Tantra. No, jump, go for it, do it. Just do it properly. Just go in understanding what you're doing, eyes wide open, and just be prepared. It's, it's a, you know, it's like what I write about in the article. It's, you know, it, it is called a quick path. It's a little bit like getting in a jet, crossing from here to um, Nirvana. Um instead of putting across in a beat up Volkswagen, right? And so beat up Volkswagen gets you there. It takes more time, but it's also safer. You know, blowout is not as dramatic as an airplane crash. And so when you get in this rocket fuel stuff, and again, everybody in the West, you have a third metaphor. You're not just in a penthouse. Now you're in a, pe- a penthouse that's in a jet, right? How many metaphors can I throw together? You're racing across the ocean of samsara, rocket fuel. Yes, I can do it. You know, like an astronaut, a cosmonaut, a psychonaut, I can do it. Yee, you know? Astronauts have a lot of training, right? You just got to abide by the principles and be humble and open and kick the tires and ask the tough questions. And then, oh my gosh, this is the greatest gift given. I mean, honestly, in my opinion, Tantra is the greatest gift given to humanity. These techniques are un-effing believable. But again, they have to be treated carefully. So yeah, let's let, let's get some questions from your piece. Okay. Well, um, maybe uh, the first one that relates directly to what you're talking about in terms of um, approaching carefully and just and making sure you you just take you do the necessary preliminaries. So maybe you could say something specifically. Our first question that came in was, "How can tantra be used to address trauma?" And and I know this is again a very large question, but maybe there's a, a, a little bit of guidance you could offer. Yeah, I can. I, I wouldn't use tantra to treat trauma. And, and the reason for this is, this is again why it's really helpful to be humble and understand the integral spectrum, that there's a spectrum of consciousness, there's a spectrum of, of psycho-spiritual pathology, and therefore there are spectrums of upayas or skillful means designed specifically for certain levels of pathology. Yes, on one level, this is where it gets tricky. The highest tantra um, transcends but includes everything. In theory, emptiness can handle everything, for sure, 100%. I'm not contesting that. But in practicality, does it work that way? Not in my experience. And so when you're working with trauma, again, I'm not a trauma specialist, but I'm really interested in the stuff. Um, The body keeps the score, how all these traumatic experiences are actually lodged in your um, gross and subtle body. And so again, when you're working with inner yoga stuff, one of the hard aspects of Tantra, you can definitely target this stuff. But um, I I absolutely, personally, I I would not touch trauma with Tantra. I would touch trauma with a trauma specialist. Work with the people that are trained to handle these sorts of things at a psychological level. And then when you get into the inner stuff, then you can come back. Because otherwise, you you go in, you target these inner um, uh, yogic systems. You target the subtle body where this trauma has its, its, its ultimate internal genesis. That stuff is broken loose a little bit. It, it can actually make things worse. 
I mean, it can really kind of um, upset the apple cart in, in a really big way. So I think this is where I really understand the great contributions of the East and West across pollination. Let's use both. In this age of information, let's use both of them. I would say, what does uh, Padmasambhava say? You know, your view should be as high as the heavens, <laughs> but your conduct and application should be as fine as barley pearl. Join heaven and earth. Have the view of the tantra which I would say in this case is honoring and respecting these relative skillful means. So personally, if I was involved with trauma, I would work with a, a deep um, body worker from a Western perspective, a psychologist trained in trauma work, get those issues resolved, and then actually work up into the more tantra things. I would not recommend using tantra for trauma. Andrew, thank you. I think that's a really uh, great and responsible answer to that question. Um, so I'm going to, uh, offer another question from one of our lovely, uh, friends who are in the audience. And by the way, Michelle says, thank you. And you are magnificent. She appreciates your kind response. Um, so, uh, Jeffrey has asked about reality. Another small topic. (laughs) Here's to reality. Would you you care to elucidate on the nature of supreme bottom line reality, i.e. what is really real in contrast to the quote, not real? Um, would, uh, yeah. So I guess maybe to bring it to specifically the Tantra, um, or Tantra and the Tantra tradition that you represent, what is reality from the perspective of Tibetan Buddhism? Beautiful. Again, I, I, I chuckle because this is just a colossally big, beautiful question, right? So much to say here. Um, and this is really one of the cool things about Tantra. <clears throat> and again, the the topic itself begs these types of questions because when when you're working again with tantra you're working with um what's called in tibetan the nintig the heart essence the bindu the the, the it, this is the that from which everything arises that to which everything returns that's another reason it's so powerful it's like a singularity i mean there's just so much here right and so um on one level my favorite definition of buddhism just to show you how big this topic is <clears throat> Yes, Buddhism is a religion, playfully for tax purposes. Yes, on one level, it's a science of mind. Actually, I don't think you can say that anymore. Evan Thompson really showed clearly, you can't say it's a science of mind. Yes, it's a philosophy. I think you can say that. But fundamentally, my favorite definition is Buddhism is a description of reality. So now you're talking about all of of what Buddhism has to offer. But in terms of Jacob's kind of um, zipping it down, I can tell you very clearly, quickly, Uh, I should say quickly, maybe not so clearly, what that irreducible description of reality is from the tantric point of view. And this is what's so cool about studying all the different schools of both Hindu and Buddhist approaches, is every one of these traditions has their particular definition and rendering of what that reality is. This, by the way, parenthetically, does have interesting analogs, especially to quantum theory, quantum physics, quantum field theory, that sort of thing. I'm super into this sort of thing. But basically, I can articulate it. the irreducible description of reality is the intercourse, the union, and this is real tantric sex, right? This is irreducible tantric intercourse of luminosity and emptiness. Is that helpful? Well, on one level, yes. On another level, I mean, we have to unpack these two colossal teachings, right? These are um, basically two-thirds of all of Buddhism. Basically, I would say I'm not, all of Buddhism relates to what is luminosity, what is emptiness, so what is reality in this regard? Well, it's it's a fundamental play of um, the no-thingness, the empty, uh, spacious nature of reality, the path of freedom conjoined with the path of fullness. So the path of freedom, this is the state's thing. In Buddhism, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, um, Nirmanakaya, Hinduism has its whole thing, the three states, Turiya, Turiya, Tita, everybody has this languaging. The path to freedom is the path to the emptiness aspect, but it's not just empty. It's full. Emptiness really means fullness. Fullness in tantric language is luminosity, light. This is all, this is where it ties into physics, by the way, a little bit. This is all fundamentally frozen light. So the path of fullness is the expression, the compassionate, loving expression of that emptiness. They're fundamentally inseparable. So again, oh, you know, there's there's so much to say here. But fundamentally, that's the irreducible description of reality from a tantric point of view. Um, and, may, and all our suffering ensues from our inability to actually abide, recognize, and live from that state. Appearance is not in harmony with reality. 
And so the entire path is, in fact, to bring a parent into harmony with reality. But I hesitate to go further just because the topic is so um, amazingly large. But um, maybe that's of some benefit. Yeah, and I'll just and I'll add, you know, that these what I find interesting as well between the different varying traditions that there's this long history of debate about these topics as well, and um, and no, you know, definitive answer. I mean, ultimately, who wins those debates? It's really up to your own kind of disposition to decide what um, what resonates. But um, and that and there's something in that too, in that kind of in the beauty of the conversation around these topics, something emerges. But you know, this is such, such a great insight, Jacob. This is really important because it, it, there's an egoic propensity. And again, this is where it's helpful to understand developmental structures and where we're operating, whether we know it or not. I mean, the state structure thing, just very brief word. The East specializes in states of consciousness. That's what we specialize in. The West, so to speak, developmentally specializes in structures of consciousness. States are given, structures are earned. The idea here is that we can introspect states. We cannot introspect structures. And so in other words, you don't see these things. You don't look at them. You look through them. That's why they're the archetypal blind spots. And how this applies here in relation to Jacob's brilliant statement is that because ego is a particularly arrested level of development, what it does in a kind of King Midas effect it projects, it imputes, it throws out into the world everything fundamentally. This is just an amazingly sophisticated construct. This is an ongoing ego is the world's fastest, most efficient construction company, right? We're constructing the sense of duality, reality, moment to moment, microsecond to microsecond. And part of this, what ego does is wanting to find, to, to throw a dart and say, that's it. Well, reality is not that simple. I mean, even the physicists were wrestling with this. I mean, Niels Bohr, I mean, when, the, when these guys are trying to figure out what light is, this is a, a very brief parenthetical interjection that's worth it. Oh, on one level, light is a wave. On another level, light is a particle. Well, it can't be both. Well, who said? Aristotle? Yes, Aristotle. But we don't, you know, Aristotle doesn't call the shots here. So a more fluid approach to reality that um, don't confuse articulation with reification. Don't, don't try to find something definitive. Realize that reality itself is malleable. It's plastic. It's what I call ontic plasticity. Again, the master of the one-liner. This is what emptiness really implies. Trung Pramache famously said, the bad news is you're falling through space without a parachute. The good news is there is no ground. And so the question is, can you fly in space? Can you be a dakini, a sky dancer? Can you be with this ontological fluidity? Can you be with this epistemological uncertainty? That to me is, is the degree of openness. And it's like, hey, I have openness. I can, I can understand this thing. I can understand this view. And, and one last thing, you see how excited I got about this. I heard Deepak Chopra give a, a really beautiful talk last year to a couple thousand people. I was part of this conference. And he riffed for like 50 minutes. He was, cre he was creating this incredibly, it's like, where is this guy going with this? He was talking about how incredibly big the cosmos is. You know, light's been traveling for 14 billion years across. I mean, you, you get the idea. More, more stars in a galaxy than there are grains of sand on the beach. And at the end, it was a death and dying conference. At the end, he said something really beautiful. He said, listen, the universe is so big. This reality is so big that there's room at this banquet. There's room at this table for all these views. And I think that is really beautiful. And that, again, is why I like the integral thing. Every, nobody has a patent on truth, man. Everybody has something that's true but partial. And so if we can maintain that humility, that openness, then the world becomes a dance, a shine, a feast. I mean, the Jewish mystics have tremendous. I learned so much from them. The Islamic mystics, the, I mean, you name it. The Buddha himself said, wherever you find the truth, you will find my dharma. So great question, like, like, what is reality? Well, let's just continue to keep, let's open the aperture of our awareness, dilate our consciousness, and let's find light wherever it arises and be a little bit aware of the propensity to reify and know. Because as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the minute you think you know something certainly, that's the end of your progress. You know, be willing to self-liberate even the antidote. Just stay open, open, open. Now reality becomes so bloody interesting and playful, right? Instead of like, ah, articulate, I got it down. You're never going to have it down. It's like putting your, trying to put your finger on a bead of mercury. Ain't going to happen. <laughs>
Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> such, such, great, such brilliant uh, response. And there's a lot of uh, positive affirmation going on in the chat in the Q&A or in the Q&A. Um, so uh, thank you for that. I think we'll take one more question. Stephanie, did you, did you have one? Yeah, I was going to try to, because we have a few questions here and I know we don't have time to get to all of them. So I was going to try to combine two of these questions. Um, you have one question that's uh, re- from Beth Johnson talking, asking about um, what would you say to older folks or those who can't attend long treats, retreats but are drawn to this path? Should we find another path? So that's part one. And then in my mind, somewhat related um, is a second question where um, from Marley Alf, she writes that she's so grateful and floored by your candid swift sharing. Can education of <clears throat> children prepare humans for Tantra later on? If yes, how? So my mind, I'm thinking two groups that can't really maybe follow a traditional path of attending retreats, children or older individuals. Um, and, you know, how would you respond to that? These really warm my heart. These are really beautiful. Oh my gosh. Well, first, uh, Beth, thank you, Beth, for a really great question. Yes, I mean, a lot of us, um, a lot of people can't do long retreat. And and this is where, in in my estimation, this is again where the importance of right view. I mean, there's a reason it's the first of the Eightfold Noble Path and arguably the most important. And so for me, Beth, what I would recommend is is just study, understand, what is it that actually constitutes the path, the spiritual path? What, what's really going on here? Um, understand what you're trying to achieve and, and why. And then I would, I would really suggest, and again, this is one of the great gifts of Tantra, is for me, one of the this, uh, differentiating factors of Tantra is that short sessions repeated often are just as important as long retreats. In fact, one of my main teachers, playfully, with a nice little jab to the Westerners, I love it. He goes, you Westerners, you're so infatuated with long retreat, you know, long, uh, long retreat, right? Oh, I'm just going to go into long retreat. Hey, I am not dissing it. I've spent three years in retreat, right? I'm, I'm a big time retreat junkie. That's not the right term, but I'm deeply um, connected to the retreat principle. But retreat, there's a near enemy. Wherever you find light, you will find shadows. So yes, on one level, you want to retreat from samsara in, into a more Hinayana, Mahayana way to create an incubator for spiritual um, germination and gestation. I'm not dissing that at all. I still do my morning practice. I still go into retreat. It has a place. But eventually, you can't live your life in an incubator. Real spiritual practice, and this is the genius of Tantra, it's a wonderful way to kind of show, um, close up here, is applied spirituality, translational research, so to speak, applied translational spirituality, where every moment becomes a retreat. Just retreat from samsara on the spot. So for someone like you, just even that, understand short sessions repeated often at the level of Tantra are just important as long practice. I do both. But for someone who can't do long retreat, understand that every time you come back to the present moment, you're retreating from samsara and distraction. Every time you open your heart to the nature of reality and and, and expand in that way, you're basically engaging, you're entering lifetime retreat in the process of daily life. That's the gift of the Tantra. Basically, like I said earlier, everything then becomes your practice. You don't have to go into lifetime retreat. You don't have to enter retreat. If you have the right attitude, this moment becomes retreat. Retreat from confusion, retreat from distraction, retreat from selflessness, retreat from ignorance. I mean, you can do this on the spot. But again, some people may go, wait wait a second, that puts a little bit of responsibility onto me. Yes, that's what Tantra is. It's a responsible, it it empowers you. And some people go, you mean I I can do all this stuff in my daily life? Yes, you can. It's a highly empowering practice. So in that respect, just to come back, Understand the principles of Tantra, really appreciate in your bones the power of coming back to the present moment, the, th- the ways you can work with this on the spot. This is why the great masters, they don't have to go into retreat because their life is a retreat. So understand those principles, right? Now, in terms of the other end, so beautiful, children. Well, I mean, honestly, here, the best thing is, is I mean, it may sound cliche, like, okay, I already knew that. Love them unconditionally, support them. 
allow them to develop structurally. This is where the, the Western contributions of development really come into play. Create the proper holding environment, a wonderful famous term by uh, Donald Winnicott. Create an atmosphere, uh, you could say mandala, if you like that term, of love, kindness, compassion. Within that, nature is genius. The body is genius. That being will evolve beautifully naturally within that environment. You don't have to do a whole lot. Yes, if you're a meditator and you have an ambiance and an environment of practice and, and that sort of thing, let the child be curious, let them come to you, let that vibe kind of transmit into them. Don't push anything on them. And then eventually, if there's that particular karmic disposition, and, and they very well may be because they were born into your mind stream and into your life, so they're perhaps karmically predisposed, but not always. I know a lot of kind of dharma, serious dharma practitioners who have kids who have no interest in this stuff. Hey, that's fine. Love them, right? So here we come back to the whole power of love. May sound, it may sound cliche, but read, read Minga Rinpoche's beautiful, beautiful book, In Love with the World, Monk's Journey Through the Bardos of Life and Death. Reality is made of the fabric of love. That's what reality is. Love is the affective expression of emptiness. Emptiness is just a funny way to talk about love. The world is made of love. So love your mind. Love your children. It may like, geez, like this guy, whatever, Christian or whatever. Hey, again, I don't care. Love, open. If you do that, oh my gosh, they, their natural daemon, their, their individual personal genius will shine. It will come forth. And they will then naturally evolve in, into basically fundamental tantric ideals. So again, this is why if you, if you also understand the principles of tantra itself, in a certain way, tantra self-liberates more than, more than other yanas and other vehicles. In other words, it's the quickest one to erase itself. This is important because otherwise you get stuck in all these colors and gadgets and all the stuff and the tips and tricks of the tantric tradition that are like, I mean, have you been in a Tibetan Buddhist temple recently? Holy crap. It's like unbelievable. But eventually you want to self-liberate all that, realize, understand the tantric principles. You can live a highly tantric life without practicing tantra. You're just engaged in, in natural tantric ideals. And fundamentally, I wouldn't say I hate it. I love to say it. It really does come down to love. And then from that, if they have a predisposition for what we are talking about here formally as Tantra, hey, high five, go for it. If not, love them. Something like that. <laughs> okay. Wow. Thank you, Andrew. It's so nice to end on a note of love. So I really appreciate that. Um, just to wrap up, you know, we didn't get to everybody's questions. Although we did, although we did cover most of them, um, there was a, a one little follow-up question about what really defines tantra, features of tantra. But for that, I'm actually going to do a shameless plug of the issue again now, <laughs> which of course this uh, session is all about. <clears throat> and actually, you don't even have to buy it to learn a little bit more about the features, because Stephanie and I wrote an introduction that is available on the Tarka Journal website that does actually go into some of that kind of features of, you know, tantric traditions and, and some of the features that are shared across different tantric traditions, including tantric Hinduism and tantric Buddhism. So if, if you're looking for, for that, um, you can go there. And there are also three other articles. Well, one of them is actually uh, Andrew's article that's also available on the website as sort of a teaser um, but hopefully you'll decide to invest in either the digital or the print issue. And again, you can do that at tarkajournal.com. Um, Stephanie, did you have any final thoughts? Um, I just want to say thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. This was very spontaneous, this coming together. I'm so grateful for your um, response, your, your positive response to show up here. It's been a really rich conversation. I've learned so much. I took three pages of notes while you were talking. <laughs> so thank you so much uh, for being here. Yeah. I mean, really, I want to say this to both of you. I mean, what you guys are doing is so cool. Tarka is amazing. The courses you offer are really amazing. I, I'm getting to know you a little bit in, in your hearts and in, in your um, approaches, your intellects, everything you bring here. It's really a delight to be associated with you. So really for me, it's an honor and privilege to, to hang with you and to hang with the uh, the, the folks in the embodied philosophy Tarka uh, family. So thank you so much for the opportunity. It's really beautiful. 
Thank you so much again, Andrew. And just as a final note, there was a question about how people can reach you, how people can learn more about you. Do you want to share anything about well, your right. website, anything that's coming up? Well, thank you so much. That's actually very kind of you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, my website, um, Andrew Holacek, H-O-L-E-C-E-K.com, lists all my stuff. I'm pretty active these days. Um, uh, have two books coming out, one book this summer on reverse meditation, how to use your cool. pain and most difficult emotions as a pathway to door, uh, inner freedom. That's a totally tantric book. And then another book next year on, on a critique and endorsement of mindfulness. So I'll, I'll be doing a, a program with Embodied Philosophy on dream yoga, which is one of my real passions. We have a platform that supports that, playfully called Night Club. Um, it's an international community of like-minded practitioners to explore the nocturnal meditations in those subtle dimensions of mind. But I think if you go to those locations, you'll find plenty of what's happening in my world. And I'm really delighted, um, yeah, to have the opportunity to share what little I've learned over these decades with people who are uh, interested in the same sort of thing. So thank you for asking. Yes. Thank you so much, Andrew. So yes, please check his workout at andrewholacek.com, you said, right? Dot com. Yeah, that's it. That'll get some. Yeah, we got All right. a lot. And, and again, please do grab the new issue of On Tantra from Tarka at uh, tarkajournal.com. Thank you so much. Have a great day.